Hey, Radically Genuine listeners, we have an urgent announcement before we start today's episode. At this pivotal moment, Western societies are entrenched in a profound mental health crisis, partly influenced by how we understand and treat human suffering. Common and expected reactions to stressful events are being pathologized, inaccurately categorized as psychiatric disorders, and haphazardly treated with psychiatric drugs. Alarmingly, Patients are frequently not informed about the potential risks linked to these drugs, and medical misinformation is rampant. This absence of informed consent represents a serious ethical violation, depriving individuals of their fundamental right to make fully informed decisions regarding their mental health care. Industrial deception amplifies the perceived benefits of these drugs while downplaying their well-documented harms. As a result, adverse drug reactions and undiagnosed health conditions are frequently misconstrued as indicators of deteriorating mental health, trapping individuals in a cycle of enduring disability. The pharmaceutical industry has hijacked our collective understanding of mental health, molding medical professionals into legalized drug dealers through their training and influence. Additionally, mental health therapists are widely influenced by industry deception, political ideology, and shifting cultural norms. Who can we rely on for compassionate, ethical, and unbiased mental health care information? Where can we find the accurate resources needed to make informed decisions about our health care? What alternative explanations or treatments may exist? We're embarking on a bold mission to revolutionize mental health care. Our objective is straightforward, to connect individuals and families with ethical health care practitioners who respect your personal values and champion your right to medical freedom and informed consent. Our larger goal is to provide free access to science-based health information, empowering you to make informed decisions. We cannot consent unless we are informed. By fearlessly challenging the established norms of the medical authority, and the psychiatric industry, we're transparently revealing the limitations and potential harms of psychiatric diagnoses and treatments. We're rallying an army of supporters to help us reach our target of $150,000. This investment is pivotal as we will provide the initial funding necessary to launch our online platform and kickstart our programmatic initiatives. Together, we can save and transform lives. I've started the Conscious Clinician Collective, and you can visit theccollective.org to join or to make a donation to this important cause. We need an army of supporters. We must unite. Please join or donate. Visit theccollective.org. The link is in our show summary. In therapy, Radically Genuine is reached when one is being truly authentic, communicating freely and openly as equals. The Radically Genuine podcast strives to do just that. We will question areas of mental health, culture, societal norms, and what is truly needed to improve the lives of others. Dr. Roger McFillin is a clinical psychologist and board certified in behavioral and cognitive psychology. He is the executive director of the Center for Integrated Behavioral Health in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Our biology is complex. It's what makes us unique and why standardizing an intervention for all has its limitations. Factors such as our genetics, nutrient deficiencies, diet, and physical activity. When we learn more about these complexities, we understand the role of functional medicine and the importance of taking an integrative approach. On today's podcast, we welcome a pioneer in the field of functional and integrative medicine, 
and board-certified child and adult psychiatrist, Dr. James Greenblatt. Welcome to the Radically Genuine Podcast. I'm Dr. Roger McFillin. You can follow me on Twitter at Dr. McFillin. You can also check me out on my website, uh, drmcfillin.com. I've been criticized recently on social media as if I'm part of a larger anti-psychiatry movement, uh, typically just for being very critical of the symptom-based drug model that currently dominates our field and talking about safety and efficacy of, of psychiatric drugs. But the truth is, I believe psychiatrists are absolutely critical to the healthcare field and in being able to understand and treat the complexities of psychiatric symptoms. I don't think psychiatrists and other medical professionals who are so haphazardly assigning diagnoses and writing out prescriptions are utilizing their medical training to the degree I think they can to help really identify uh, the potential of other underlying causes. We're, we're certainly in a mental health crisis and our response to just double down on more drugs is creating more problems. That brings us to today's guests, um, a pioneer in the field of functional and integrative medicine, board-certified child and adult psychiatrist, Dr. James Greenblatt, has treated, treated patients since 1988. After receiving his medical degree and completing a psychiatry residency at George Washington University, Dr. Greenblatt completed a fellowship in child and adolescent psychiatry at John Hopkins Medical School. He currently serves as the chief medical officer at Walden Behavioral Healthcare in Waltham, Massachusetts, and an assistant clinical professor of psychiatry at Tufts University School of Medicine, and Dartmouth College Geisel School of Medicine. Dr. Greenblatt has lectured internationally on scientific evidence for nutritional interventions in psychiatry and mental illness. He's the author of seven books, including bestseller, Finally Focused, The Breakthrough Natural Treatment Plan for ADHD, and Answers to Anorexia, which was published in 2021. His newest book, Functional and Integrative Medicine for Antidepressant Withdrawal, was just recently released in October. He's the founder of Psychiatry Redefined, an educational platform dedicated to the transformation of psychiatry, which offers, offers accredited online courses and a comprehensive fellowship program for professionals. You can check it out at psychiatryredefined.org or jamesgreenblattmd.com for more information. Dr. Greenblatt, welcome to the Radically Genuine Podcast. Uh, thank you. It's uh, great to be with you today. Yeah, it's a real honor. Having you on, on board is, is really important for us because we get to ask very critical questions from somebody who, who was trained as a modern-day uh, contemporary psychiatrist but has certainly taken a non-traditional path. Can you tell us a little bit about your story and how you currently got to this place in your career? Uh, sure. Um, and I, I think the, um, the important place to work backwards is that I'm still embedded in traditional psychiatry. I've been running inpatient psychiatric programs for 30 years, and I train residents who are learning the, the art and medicine of psychiatry. But as you said, I've taken a different approach. I went into medicine thinking I was going to cure the world with brown rice and kale, hmm. you know, 40 years ago. And I came out, a, you know, psychopharmacologist of child psychiatry. And very quickly did I realize that meds aren't the answer. It's a tool in our toolbox. And, uh, you know, over the years, I've always had a private practice of those looking at nutritional and functional medicine. But, you know, the past 10 years, the research has caught up. And now it is just um, 
the science is clear that we have additional tools that we can help our patients with. And that's been kind of my educational platform. And I'm trying to do it with one foot in traditional psychiatry and kind of one foot um, out in the integrative and functional community. Yeah, let's define what functional and integrative medicine actually is and how it is applied to psychiatry. And then just for comparison's sake, try to, you know, inform our our audience what would be kind of the modern day or the contemporary psychiatry that we currently use to treat psychiatric disorders. Sure. I, I wish that uh, there weren't so many confusing terms because not only are there, is the public and the consumer confused, but our professionals are consumed. But here's the way I would uh, break it down. Integrative medicine looks at a lifestyle and uh, focuses on the, in terms of the academic world, a mindfulness. So now yoga is okay. Now there's mindfulness programs at Harvard and Stanford and everywhere else. And people now, you know, understand that we can um, hand patients prescriptions for exercise. So it's kind of that lifestyle component. Functional medicine is more of a systems biology approach looking at root cause. And that's where we look at genetics. We look at nutrition. We look at um, the gut in a kind of scientific, physiological way. And as you described in your introduction, helping psychiatrists um, with practice with their medical training that they went through. That's helpful for me. Uh, Right before we jumped onto this podcast, I was telling Roger how confusing it is for someone who does not work in the medical community to even understand the nuances between uh, those important fields, especially in psychiatry. And I think the normal course of action for for many people in in a time period where they may be struggling with something is they jump into Google and they look for a doctor in the area and they're just using the common terms of like psychiatry, psychologists, or doctor. And they may find themselves down a path to meet with somebody who may not be giving them the type of treatment that is really in line with maybe their personal beliefs. So I found that very, very helpful. Thank you for taking us through that. So what would be most of, most of the patients who, you know, come to my center here in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, and I think throughout the United States, they're exposed to what would be considered more of a mainstream psychiatric care. How would you define what mainstream psychiatric care currently is? How do they, uh, how do they understand the etiology of, of mental illness and how are they largely treating it? Well, they don't, you know, uh, traditional psychiatry, the model is, is pretty much medication and therapy. And it's a symptomatic based model. If you're sad, you're going to get an anti-sad pill. We call them antidepressants. There's no concept in a training psychiatrist that, oh, it might be a hormonal problem. It might be thyroid, it might be a B12 deficiency. And we can make a list of 20 possible factors from pancreatic cancer to early trauma that might be contributing to that sadness that we're gonna call depression. And our, we're training doctors to prescribe pills based on the symptoms. And, and that's kind of what we have to change because you know there are clearly uh, patients who benefit from medication. So one of my favorite lines that I haven't given up my prescription pad, um, there is a role, but it is just expanding our toolbox to look at root cause. So that's important that you, that you mentioned that. Um, 
In what situations would you say that it is appropriate to prescribe psychiatric medications? And in, in which manner, like, how is that done? You know, under what conditions, for what length of time? And, and if informed consent is provided, you know, how is that communicated to the patient where psychiatric drugs might be, um, might be needed? Yeah, I mean, I have a skewed perspective because so much of my work over the years has been in inpatient psychiatric hospitals where patients have been at their worst, suicidal, psychotic, paranoid after a trauma. And, and clearly there's a role for medications. So I think psychosis, um, number one, medications can help. Um, you know, a severe depression, even though we have literature that says antidepressants might only work 50 to 60% of the time for that first prescription, We've all seen it work. And a nutritional functional medicine approach could take three or four months as we look at root cause. So oftentimes medicine might be utilized as that first step. You know, the informed consent is, is really critical as you've described. We can, you know, have sit across from a mother with a 17 year old adolescent who's depressed and suicidal and we're handing them a prescription and telling them, well, this medicine could, you know, cause increased suicidality weight gain, and um, you know you might have withdrawal if you have to stop it. So uh, informed consents are not typically um, provided in, in a fashion that is um, the basis of the rest of medicine. So I want to challenge you on, on one of your statements. So I've probably thrown myself into the psychiatric literature over the past 10 years, really uh, in particular looking at the efficacy of antidepressants. And you know, when you look at what is actually published, uh, what is not published, which is very difficult to be able to obtain that data, you know, you can through, uh, through lawsuits, actually, where it has to be released. It's very difficult to distinguish an antidepressant from kind of a placebo group. So, um, you know, I question whether, and, I, and I've stopped using the word antidepressant, I've stopped using the word med med medicine, because I don't think those drugs are, are medicinal. And the manner in which they're now being prescribed, widely prescribed to groups of people who we don't have really strong evidence for, specifically young people, teenagers under the age of 25. I've stopped using the, the, the name antidepressant because I think its major property of if it's going to work is probably the placebo response. There might be a percentage of people where that emotional blunting or that, uh, you know, the effect that you're going to get from it being a psychoactive substance, maybe we can call it an active placebo, does have some beneficial qualities. But if I say that psychiatric drugs should be rare, short-term, and basically used for stabilization purposes, would you have any disagreement with that? Uh, not at all. I mean, I think... Um most of my career is helping people get off the medicines. I, I think they're completely inappropriate in, in the kids that we're um, prescribing these antidepressants and people are kind of missing and minimizing the side effects. I think um, just like any nutrient, um, I think for those of us who've been in the field, um, you know, I think that 50% placebo that we do get with M&Ms um, or anything else, is real in the treatment of depression, but I, I think um, there is that uh, subset of individuals who could benefit um, from medications uh, while we're doing the other kinds of uh, lifestyle or functional medicine 
approaches. And, and that might be clinical skill, might be experience, it might be the uh, placebo effect, but it, it is just not common in our current model. All right, let's get into some of the nitty gritty here of this. Um, it's not atypical for people seeking mental health treatment to really report a combination of concerns that include mood, anxiety, and focus, especially in the outpatient world. Right now, I think close to 80% of psychiatric drugs are being provided in primary care settings. So clients are reporting these symptoms and primary care doctors are really just writing prescriptions. If somebody was presenting with those combinations, you know, how would a functional and integrative uh, psychiatrist kind of approach that case? Can you talk to us about some of the things that you might be looking for, tests that are used? Absolutely. I mean, I think the most important part, whether it's a PCP or mental health professional, is that kind of therapeutic alliance and that uh, relationship. So we can't dismiss that part of the placebo. And that, and that to me, includes um, providing uh, hope that, that we're going to get you feeling better. And we're going to look at the underlying cause. So someone presents with that insomnia, anxiety, depression, unclear what's going on, whether there's stress or not, it, it is a medical workup. We're looking at a nutritional deficiencies. We're looking at hormonal deficiencies. We're looking at the gut. We're looking at digestion because that's the only way I'm going to be able to provide a treatment plan for that individual. I think the simplest way to describe it, if you picked 10 men or women the same age, 35-year-olds that come into the office with the exact same symptoms, I'm going to get eight different kind of patterns or biochemical patterns or causes and each treatment plan is going to be different. May I ask a question? Um, I heard you speak specifically about the um, adolescent population, children and adolescent. And uh, I'm, a, I'm a father of a two-year-old and my child is eventually going to start going to school. And then during the course of the conversations we've had in this room, I realized that sometimes the uh, the first person to make recommendations that your child may have ADHD um, or is disruptive comes from a teacher. Now, if I'm a parent and I'm not aware of many of these um, typical interventions, I may resort to seeking out a medication for my child, thinking he is hyperactive and he needs to calm down. What would your recommend recommendation be to a parent if they're hearing from the school that their child is disruptive or may have ADHD, what would be the first course of treatment? I, I think uh, like so many uh, parents um, getting their information from one source um, can be um, kind of overwhelming because they're not getting the big picture. So the most important thing I can recommend is that you're taking that observation um, but trying to understand it. And again, that's where we keep coming back to that integrative functional medicine model. You know, it could be anything from eyeglasses to hearing, but it also could be, you know, a, a magnesium deficiency or it could be stress or it could be a food allergy. There's so many factors that could contribute to inattention or overactivity. So we're taking the, the teacher observation because at home with uh, you know, one or two children versus 30 children, the behavior is going to look different. But we're not just going with a, a medication, again, to treat the symptoms. We're trying to see if there's 
a psychological or for ADHD, which is what I've mostly been doing for 30 years, a biological cause contributing to that behavior. May I ask how a food allergy um, would manifest itself in the form of like hyperactivity? Sure. I mean, this is research that I remember talking about um, in 1990 and in Boston when somebody in California was um, taken to the medical board for looking at food allergies in a hyperactive child. And um, it's not the, the immediate allergic reactions that we see when someone gets hives or wheezing. It's called delayed hypersensitivity. And um, it can uh, manifest in a number of behavior problems. Some of the physical problems could be things like the red cheeks or the red ears or the runny nose. Um, and the behavior problems is usually inattention or overactivity or impulsivity. It's, it's pretty dramatic when you see it. It's not every child with ADHD. You remove the foods and behavior improves. And there's research, uh, not a lot, but there's research going back 30 years looking at this mechanism. Is it the removal of the food for a lifetime or is it a temporary um, intervention until maybe the gut resolves itself? Yeah, great question. Most of the time it is um, short term. It's not like a, a celiac disease where someone has a gluten sensitivity that is unlikely to change. It is uh, more of a um, kind of where the body and the gut is. It developed an immune response, uh, delayed hyperactivity response. So it's often these foods can be introduced down the road. One follow-up question. Are there common foods that parents should be aware of that are typically high sensitivity for you know children and adolescents? Yeah. I mean, it, being in the eating disorder field, one of the things I'm very cautious about is recommend not recommending people remove any foods because that's a, a very a slippery slope. Well said. But, you know, it does come down to dairy and gluten are the most common and, um, you know, and, and particularly in the under 12 children, under seven in particular. So when we talk about meds in children, I don't believe any child under six should be medicated until some, they had a complete functional medicine workup because most of the time we can get to the root of those behavior problems. And the medication um, train uh, is endless. And, and these I'm seeing these kids on three or four medications and the behavior is not much better. Yeah, I think some of the challenges that exist is the modern day healthcare system. You know, doctors are talking about uh, being rushed in, uh, in the primary care centers. I think uh, I just saw a study where the average time spent with a patient in primary care centers is eight minutes. So everything that is going to be required to, I think, optimize health and be able to analyze the challenges, all the different various factors that could lead to somebody's presentation is it takes time. And it takes thorough evaluation. How did we get to this point in the American healthcare uh, system? You know, I think if we just take psychiatry or mental illness, you know, it's it's a, a kind of cleaner path of never really over the last hundred years understanding behavior and, and what caused it. So we just made things up along the way, you know, whether it was in infections or the devil or anything that came to mind. And, and, and all of a sudden in the 80s, you know, we found Prozac and it started us on this kind of psycho farm revolution. 
and and it was cheap, simple, and it kind of defined this model of symptomatic-based medication. And then the pharmaceutical companies, they 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 all the research, all the education for um, mental health comes through these pharmaceutical companies. So I think the '80s put us on this medicine, you know, this miracle drug Prozac, and then it just been a pretty ugly single focused train, um, you know, for the past 45 years. Um, one area that you also touched on, uh, and you mentioned it was on nutrient deficiencies. Can we, can we go into that in terms of what you think are the more common nutrient deficiencies and, and how we can uh, overcome those? Well, I think we're up to 200 hours of content on psychiatry defined. So it's a long topic. I think it's, um, <laughs> Really, you know, the brain is the most metabolically active organ in the body. And nutritional deficiencies are going to affect brain function before any other organ. And uh, just been, you know, oblivious to it um, for, for just so many years. So we could go through any nutrient, uh, the most common, you know, for mental health or med severe mental illness would be vitamin D, which is epidemic deficiency, you need that for serotonin synthesis, vitamin B12, folic acid, and the other B vitamins, thiamine. Those are probably uh, the most common, but we really could go through each one and see how it affects a brain chemistry, and for some individuals, a path towards mental illness or psychological symptoms. So uh, I'll throw out magnesium because I just started putting some magnesium in my, my smoothie um, when I make them in the morning. Um, am I getting the magnesium I need by putting in a scoop of 200 milligrams of a, of a magnesium biphosphates, whatever, I can't remember the name of it, but I'm just putting a scoop in thinking I need more of it. You know, I, I think magnesium is probably the most common nutritional deficiency on the planet. And it would be without question a patients uh, coming to the office with mental health challenges. So it's, it's very hard to get adequate magnesium in our standard American diet um, based on the soil that we're taking these vegetables from and based on the foods we're eating, we're certainly feeding our children. Um, when you, all the soft drinks have uh, phosphoric acid, even the quote healthy ones, and that binds magnesium and, and stress causes us to lose magnesium. So it's the perfect setup. You're absolutely right. Most of us on the planet would benefit from extra magnesium. And it's one of the few minerals in, in our ADHD book where it's the first chapter because it's um, one so important. And also it's one of the few minerals I'd recommend without testing, you mm -hmm. know, without looking at your individual biochemistry. We can assume most of us are deficient. Are you aware of the work of Dr. Christopher Palmer at Harvard Medical School? Uh, sure. Uh, I know the work very well, and we've um, put on a lot of um, conferences and programs on ketogenic diet and mental health in our program. Yeah, I wanted to get your thoughts on uh, you know, low-carb or ketogenic interventions that target metabolic uh, dysfunction. Yeah, I think it's an important topic. I'll, I'm actually speaking uh, for a low-carb conference uh, next month. And um, so I do think as a tool, I like the word you use as an interventional tool, it's one of the most underutilized, incredible changes of brain chemistry. I mean, both for psychosis, in my world, a binge eating disorder, 
and I, I could think of a number of other um, disorders where I've seen improvement. My only concern with the kind of low carb ketogenic movement is oftentimes they don't see it as an intervention and they might not be looking for vitamin B12 deficiency. So we, we can't just take a, a ketogenic diet as the answer for all of mental health, but if we understand it as a tool, as an intervention, that might be three, six, 12 months, it can have pretty dramatic changes to um, the course of a mental illness. Is there an optimal human diet? No, simple, <laughs> absolutely. I mean, just think about it. And we've all been obsessing about it through our lives as practitioners and patients and individuals and families. Um, you know, I, I just go back to people in certain cultures living on fat, uh, you know, and blubber and other cultures living on vegetables and, and everyone's happy. So there's absolutely not a diet. Um, uh, we all have different metabolisms. And uh, I think you can find that balance. The only thing I do speak out against, and maybe it'll come back to haunt me, is I'm very um, concerned about a vegan diet, uh, particularly in adolescents. I've seen destructive paths of mental illness, and I would urge any parent to uh, get in the way of a vegan diet, at least through till they get through puberty. Can you um, go into more of that? Because I do... I'm aware of some friends who uh, have a vegan lifestyle or vegetarian, and I believe that transitions over to their children where maybe it's just easier for them when they're preparing meals to feed the children what they're eating. What's, what's missing? What's, what's happening in the development that a child needs um, additional? Well, let me, let me just share. Part of this is, is my uh, clinical experience treating thousands of patients coming to a hospital, adolescents, thousands over years, as well as the research, okay? And the research is also quite clear, particularly for eating disorders. Um, a vegan diet is not sufficient through puberty of, of B vitamin B12, zinc, oftentimes iron, and the amino acid tryptophan. So if it is a lifestyle, if it is a religious, if it is for whatever reason, as long as the parents can understand these potential nutritional deficiencies and, and supplement or test and supplement, but to just allow, and most of the, the kids we're seeing struggling with mental illness, they do not come from vegetarian families. So they just decide they wanna be vegan. And um, you know, it's mostly pasta and not very nutrient-dense uh, foods. Mm. It, it is a clear path, particularly, again, not for everyone. Part of the whole premise of integrative uh, and functional medicine is that everyone's different with different genetic vulnerabilities. There are gonna be kids who are gonna go on a vegetarian diet and do fine. But if you have a family history of psychiatric symptoms, then a, a, a vegan diet, vegetarian, I think is a little different. You can carefully take care of your health on a vegetarian diet, but a vegan diet is lacking uh, essential nutrients. So this episode is following the episode we just recently released, Dr. Ken Berry, who is uh, an advocate of the carnivore diet and published the book, Lies My Doctor Told Me. Now, he really advocates for a grass-fed 
red meat um, for the most part and organs, uh, animal uh, like liver and kidney. Kidneys, yeah. As far as the most nutrient dense food and the and the, the importance of the, the fat in that diet and how our ancestors evolved. So this ancestral kind of diet component. Um, and he would argue that that type of lifestyle is an optimal lifestyle for, for human beings. And that too many, too many vegetables, for example, can be really problematic. Um, that they release phytochemicals and their gut irritants and they don't have the same nutrient density as animal products. Your thoughts on that? It's, uh, I know, you know, Dr. Barry's work and, and, you know, in some ways it would be hard to disagree, right? But I can also share with you brilliant um, individuals who can articulate this incredibly scientific path from the phytochemicals in Brussels sprouts and broccoli, you know, that affect our genes in this phenomenon of epigenetics that can contribute to healing and detoxification and, and brain health. So there's great scientific evidence for, you know, um, the role of vegetable diets, and there's pretty good clinical evidence around this role of a more, you know, paleolithic or, um, you know, meat-based diet. So again, I think it just goes back to the, to the individual. I think I'm, I'm not a fan of uh, a hundred percent carnivore diet, which I think is what he recommends. Um, now I, I have seen it as an intervention be helpful, but um, I, I think somewhat more balanced, but focusing on these uh, animal products and certainly organ meats are nutrient dense and I think can be healthy. I've always taken the approach of just kind of listening to my body in terms of it telling me what I may need. And sometimes if I've, I've eaten poorly, maybe had too much meat or something high fat, I feel like I chase it with a lot of vegetables and I, I kind of pull back a little bit. Is it important for us to listen to our body or can our body sometimes lead us down a path of, um, of a, a poor diet and continuing a poor diet? No, I, th I think that has to be the goal because our differences are clear, right? We look different. Our fingerprints are different. Our, our ability to uh, digest and absorb nutrients are different. So yes, listening to your body, except for when we get to things like refined sugar, because our body is going to you know, start craving it. And that's going to kind of hijack, hijack our kind of normal neurochemistry. But other than some of these chemicals like MSG and, and refined sugar, absolutely, that has to be what we teach our kids, as well as how we kind of live our lives. I want to utilize your... I mean, we all know those individuals that can eat a salad and feel full, and someone else who does need that, that meat and I can't tell you how many people that I've seen that went on a vegetarian diet, they felt fatigued and miserable, they went back to eating meat, and they feel better. And then their, their spouse is the complete opposite. I do want to tap okay. in. Yeah, I want to tap into your knowledge here for the treatment of anorexia. We have an eating disorder program where we utilize um, FBT, family-based therapy for, for adolescents, um, where it's indicated majority of the time and obviously there's a real focus in there. The food is the medicine and the parents are, we're creating an entire system for them to refeed in a healthy way. One of the challenges in that is being able to optimize the diet for 
weight restoration. So what are some of your suggestions when you started um, developing a nutritional plan to restore weight in an FBD program? Are there certain foods that you're absolutely focusing on that are necessary for recovery? You know, that's been my, my life's work now for 20 years, uh, trying to help people understand what is right in front of them, that these kids are malnourished and starving and our treatment programs do not, well, certainly 20 years ago they didn't, now they're just beginning to understand this basic concept. So to me, it's not the food. Um, FBT is helpful, particularly for some, uh, most of our adolescents, not, not all, as you described, but it's not just the calories. It's the nutrients that they've been deprived of for so long. And, and so those are fats. So omega-3 fatty acids are critically important for recovery. And the, the trace mineral that I think is almost ideological for zinc, uh, for anorexia, is zinc deficiency. So with micronutrients, B vitamins, omegas, and zinc, uh, these kids' digestive system works better and they're able to tolerate the food more easily as they begin the refeeding process. So to me, everyone's putting calories in their kids and many are restoring weight, but the relapse rate is really high because it's calories without thinking of these micronutrients. Can a teenager recover from anorexia on a a vegetarian diet? Uh, The research is pretty dismal and and that's what I quote. It's a higher relapse rate, slower weight restoration, never get to the the weight. Um, But I do think they can, again, on on a vegetarian diet, not a vegan diet, on a vegetarian diet, um, but also with the nutritional supplementations. With the nutrient deficiencies, can you talk about what's happening in the individual's mind who's suffering from anorexia that makes them, I don't know, the fearful of, and that's probably, I'm I'm using the words improperly, like fearful of food? What's happening? Sure. I mean... Uh, we know eating disorders, anorexia in particular, is genetic. There's a vulnerability. It's one of the highest genetic vulnerabilities. So there's something different in, in the genes, but something has to trigger it. And it could be stress or trauma, or in my world, it's nutritional deficiencies. So what happens when you're zinc deficient, it, it sets up this course of changes in your gut and changes in your brain. Changes in your gut, you, you just don't digest food. You're acid and all the digestive enzymes are zinc dependent. So when you eat, you feel nauseous, you feel full, you feel miserable. So eating gets challenging. And then in terms of brain chemistry, zinc is required for both structural and functional enzymes for making most of the neurotransmitters, helping uh, to make melatonin so you sleep. So you get depressed, anxious, and then we don't know the exact mechanism of the delusion uh, about this fear of gaining weight and feeling like you're fat, even though you're very emaciated, but that we see in, in kind of malnutrition and starvation. So there are mechanisms we understand, um, but mechanisms we don't, but we see it all reversed with refeeding. I've heard um, some uh, individuals suffering from anorexia say they feel better when they're not eating. Why is that? That's, that's, yes, it's one of my favorite teaching lines when I try to teach psychiatry residents to understand that concept. 
Thank you for, for sharing that. So if you and I eat, most you know, we probably feel better. There's some relief, either the food tastes good or we're hungry. But the neurochemistry of someone in, in the throes of anorexia, when they eat, the, the, probably related to serotonin receptors, but their brain actually becomes dysphoric, right? So the, the chemistry is different. And um, so if you understand that as a parent or as a therapist, you're not going to kind of blame the kid. You're going to understand that this is, and there's some interesting evolutionary articles on why this was an adaptation, you know, 50,000 years ago. But if you understand that, you're going to be much more empathic that this is a brain-based illness. This child feels miserable when they eat, and we need to do everything we can to both understand it and treat it. And absolutely, they feel miserable when they eat, and they feel better when they're running, purging, exercising, or all these other um, kind of uh, mechanisms. Let me follow up on that evolutionary biology um, are you referring to maybe like an adaptation to periods where there was famine? Yes, exactly. Okay. Can you speak more about that? Well, I think um, uh, Gussinger, a psychologist, um, wrote about it, and uh, she's finishing a book. It's probably that around the time I was writing about um, zinc, um, maybe 2014. So Gussinger has a, a website, and, and she wrote about this theory, Adapted to Famine. And she just talked about this evolutionary adaptation when there was, you know, not enough calories, the, 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 the kind of genetics for anorexia, where there was kind of this hyperactivity. So you would start moving more to look for food. Uh, you would have these perceptual distortions. So you wouldn't see yourself as kind of emaciated. Otherwise, you would just kind of hang out and die with the elderly and a whole bunch of other brain chemistry adaptations. So there's a very nice, simple mechanism of this kind of evolutionary adaptation to famine. I don't think we utilize that kind of uh, scientific thinking enough in our, in our general field. I mean, one way to think about some of the, the mental health problems that exist is a, a kind of a genetic mismatch with what modern society is from our activity level, sun exposure, nutrition, uh, loss of social connections, spirituality. And I think that really speaks to that biopsychosocial approach to treating these conditions that often I think we just really miss out on. I think you're absolutely right. That kind of genetic environmental mismatch, you know, it's been playing out for a long time and, and really is certainly getting so far from our evolutionary roots. It's, it's affecting our, our mental health in profound ways. And, and I think this generation of kids, um, just for me being in the field for 30 years, it is much worse than it was 20 years ago. Do you believe um, we, we've gotten so clean, <laughs> for lack of a better word? Um, we wash our hands a lot. We use lots of antibacterial sprays and, and our water is very purified. What are we missing out on that could be contributing to... Uh, this maybe rise in, in the mental health crisis here in the United States? Probably dirt. You know, there's a good book that came out, Let Your Kids Eat Dirt. I mean, <laughs> I think that the good news for, for me as a clinician is um, the uh, academic world across the globe, not just here in the States, have really taken to understanding the microbiome and the gut and um, 
our relationship with bacteria. They haven't addressed as much of the other nutritional things. So the research has really exploded and, and we understand the importance of um, our relationship with the microbiome across um, not only our gut, but every other part of our body. And so absolutely our kind of hygiene cleanliness have contributed to lots of health problems. Our obsession with bugs and overuse of antibiotics has contributed to many health problems. I'm going to transition a little bit. I've heard you lecture on this, and I know that there's a there's a, a group, uh, you know, internationally who kind of advocate for low-dose nutritional lithium. What can you tell us about that science and how it's implemented? Uh, it's probably one of the most, you know, fascinating topics that I've been involved in. I actually started reading about it when I was in college and, uh, you know, before medical school. And, and lithium is, a, is an element in the periodic table, right? It is a natural element. It was one of the first three elements in, in the Big Bang 13 billion years ago, hydrogen, helium, and lithium. And lithium is in the, the Earth's crust. And, um, you know, we use it for technology. You know, we make airplanes, batteries, and, and fireworks, you know, from lithium. Um, but it's also essential for the human body. Small amounts of lithium are essential for brain function. And, you know, we kind of got a little distracted. We uh, came up with a medication, lithium carbonate for bipolar disorder. And these medications are 1,200 to 1,800 milligrams. And it can help bipolar disorder. But my interest has been in what you refer to as nutritional lithium, these trace amounts that we happen to get mostly through our water supply. And we have research gone back since the 70s that the amount of lithium, this element in our water supply, not only um, uh, can affect uh, a brain function and can predict rates of suicide and Alzheimer's disease. So trace amounts of lithium in the water. We have 30 years of research across the globe. If you have higher levels of lithium in the water that you're drinking, you're going to have lower rates of, of mental illness in general, but suicide in particular. It's fascinating. It is. I mean, if we were to look at the population of the United States and, and look at the, the public water system, I mean, could we identify certain areas where the, the lithium levels are appropriate um, and those that are lacking and see any type of prevalence of uh, increased uh, mental health issues? Yes, and it's been done. It's been done in um, a couple states, Texas and Alabama. We have maps of uh, lithium in the water supply across the U.S., but we also have it in like 12 other countries, mm. you know, in, in Japan and Greece. And, and if you take different uh, areas of the country, the low lithium is associated with higher suicide rates in that area of the country. It, it's ind indisputable research with uh, millions of, 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 of individuals in these collective um, studies, and, and many were published in the last couple of years, these meta-analysis. It, it's just fascinating. Yeah, I would say that um, the public perception of lithium is probably influenced, you know, I grew up in the 90s, I listened to Nirvana, and I think of lithium <laughs> as, a, as a pharmaceutical, um, an, an intervention for someone who's really suffering from, uh, from depression. I don't think of it as just a normal nutrient that should be part of our, our daily diet. Um, the difference between what is recommended uh, on a daily basis versus what 
Um, you said uh, the actual pharmaceuticals is about 1,500 micrograms. Yeah, so there's the the, uh, the nutrients in your water supply. But uh, before we go move on, we should just think about what's happened the past 30 or 40 years. Nobody mm -hmm. drinks water, tap water anymore, right? So bottled water, most of it does not have the lithium because it's filtered out. So our obsession with bottled water um, is, is a concern for lots of reasons. But um, the um, amount of lithium in, in these, in tap water are, are micrograms, mm -hmm. micrograms. The clinical use of lithium that we use in, in our practice might be one to five milligrams, okay? The uh, prescription medicines are 15 to 1800. And, and those, I rarely use prescription lithium because of the, the side effects. Although I do use nutritional lithium every day in a clinical practice. Mm. Yeah, this is fascinating because, you know, there's a lot of problems with the bottled water. Most notably, I think the plastics, right? And yeah. the endocrine disruptors right. and a number of other things. Um, how can people be able to get lithium from other means? If it's not from water, is there anything uh, about the food source that we can be able to get more lithium? Uh, you know, most of it's from tap water. So you could just look at your community. It would say the level of lithium um, to know what's in your water, if you have well water to check it. Um, you know, it, it is in, in certain foods. I've read, I haven't seen the research, but some of our herbs like thyme is the most concentrated source of, of lithium. Um, there's other reports of, of things like beets. Um, so lithium is in our food supply. Uh, it's not heavily in our animal products. It's in some of our vegetable products and some of our herbs. Yeah, I think overall when we start looking about the, I mean, we have a soil crisis. Uh, the nutrients and minerals that are depleted from our soils are, are really problematic, I would imagine, and, and real, I, I think, from your perspective, probably something that's that's critical. Absolutely. And again, some of the nutrients like lithium will vary. If you're farming in one area of California, it might be very low. Another area, it could be high. I want to transition again. You've been very generous with your time here, and you just have a new book that's released, Functional Integrative Medicine for Antidepressant Withdrawal. This is you know, really prominent in the outpatient communities, when you have a large practice like I do, you see a lot of clients who have been on antidepressants for quite some time, many who don't respond well to it, who don't feel well on it, and they're seeking out advice on how to safely taper off these drugs. What do you know? Well, it's an area I've been involved with, um, you know, for almost 30 years. And this book is, is it's more of a textbook. It's more for professionals because it, it is kind of protocol driven looking at the chemistry. And I think it just brings us back to where we started. Uh, what is, you know, integrative and functional medicine? It's everyone's different. So to me, the best way to talk about antidepressant withdrawal is if we give one person an antidepressant, they've been on it for 10 years, they stop it and they don't have a problem. The next person, they stop it and they're in acute withdrawal and brain zaps and can't sleep and have to go back on the medication. So, I mean, I agree with you, these medicines were overused and not necessarily indicated, but it just reflects that it's not necessarily the medicine, it's the individual's biochemistry. So our approach, 
which I've been doing clinically for 10 years and I don't see antidepressant withdrawal anymore at all, is just looking at this, the individual biochemistry, some of the things we talked about. And those individuals that have severe withdrawal usually are deficient in many of the cofactors required for the synthesis of serotonin, which is what these medicines are disrupting. So B12 deficiency, folate, zinc, magnesium. And if we replete B6, if we test before we withdraw and we replete, then oftentimes we can minimize all of these um, withdrawal symptoms. Do antidepressants influence the depletion of these important uh, nutrients? Are, do they affect gut microbiome? You know, there's, there's literature that says it does. Absolutely. Um, not a lot, but it certainly um, it disrupts the, this uh, neurotransmitter, uh, even though it's temporarily increasing. And I think our animals studies are showing that it causes a decrease in serotonin. And so your body adapts to it. And that's why your brain flips out when you stop these medicines quickly. So given um, all this variability that exists with each individual and then length of time that somebody might be on an antidepressant, are there some people who just can't get off of them, would never be able to safely taper off? Um, I, I don't believe that's accurate, but I, I believe some people um, could take a long time. Every year that I do this, I'm trying to I go slower for those, particularly for drugs like Paxil and Effexor. Um, it might be a year, but we can uh, typically get someone off the medication. Isn't there uh, some uh, chemical dependence that the body forms over the course of multiple years being on a medication? Uh, yes, the body just is adapted to the, this medication, which is causing um, the changes. So if we can kind of help the body slowly adapt to a new normal, a new physiological normal, oftentimes, again, it requires um, heavy nutrient supplementation, we can taper them off the medication. So um, I remember one, uh, it was the Ashton Manual. Does, is that an appropriate protocol? It's for benzodiazepines. For benzodiazepines. In terms of a tapering or, or a weaning that has to happen responsibly. Yeah. Yeah. I, I know the name, but I don't know specifics. But benzos are, are the same in, in some ways. But I think we're much better at weaning someone off of benzodiazepine um, by simply going slowly and the body can adapt. The, I've also found it particularly helpful to add certain micronutrients to a benzodiazepine withdrawal as well. Okay. Dr. Greenblatt, I'm curious to, uh, to know how, how you're treated in mainstream circles of psychiatry because, you know, I think at times, you know, I just see this uh, through social media and how there can be real, a backlash for, for people who are talking about nutritional psychiatry and metabolic conditions and lifestyle factors. I'm just curious to know, you know, how you're treated in these circles. Well, so far, I think, okay. I mean, I've got academic, I teach residents, and I, I think I've stayed in the field um, by focusing on anorexia, because nobody really can argue with me, talking about uh, nutrient deficiencies, when I'm talking about a malnourished disorder with the most high um, risk of suicide and the most highest mortality rate. So that's kept me sane and being able to teach at, at Harvard and Tufts and Dartmouth. And, and I think um, what's happened over the 30 years is the research has caught up. So there's nothing 
that we teach in our program that's not evidence-based. Now, it might not be a study that gets a headline in the New York Times, like a new drug, but there are people that have researched this low-dose lithium. There are people that have researched the relationship between the gut and psychosis. So everything we do is based on science and research, and we're just trying to educate uh, practitioners. You started off this conversation um, in a very encouraging way. You know, based on your 30 years, you, you feel like we've migrated over to this area and the progress seems to be happening in terms of these interventions and, and the evidence base behind it. What are you excited about now moving forward into the future? What are you looking at? Is there anything else that you're really excited about that could be somehow um, on the verge in the next five years? Well, I'm optimistic and, and hopeful, and I actually quit my day job um, at the hospital to focus full time on this uh, educational pathway, because I do now think that, as I said, with the research to support it, and finally, as you guys have been talking about, uh, the evidence for this pure symptomatic-based pharmacotherapy is just not there. So I think the timing is right, right? We have frustrated patients, we have frustrated clinicians now, and we have research. So I'm hoping that that kind of triad, um, meaning this is the right time to change our model. Totally agree. Um, can you tell us a little bit about Psychiatry Redefined, the organization? Sure, it started um, three years ago as just an opportunity to educate um, you know, professionals. It was initially for prescribers um, to help them add uh, nutritional psychiatry. So psychiatric nurse practitioners and psychiatrists. And then we got more naturopaths. Um, and then our you know, expansion for next year is really focusing on psychologists and social workers and offering continuing education in integrative medicine. So you know, we just, the hundreds of thousands of clinicians on the front lines, if they can understand this integrative and functional model. So we have, you know, our courses and we have a year long fellowship and it's just an opportunity for people to find the information that they're looking for. Yeah, it's really exciting. As a clinical psychologist who runs a, a larger group practice, that's an area where we are really focused on moving and being able to educate our, our patients. So any information, continuing education credits, opportunities for continued learning or to be able to, you know, uh, in any way kind of cooperate with the work that you're doing. We'd love to, to be able to have that information. It's necessary. Great. All right, Dr. Greenblatt, we really appreciate your time. It was a fascinating conversation. So much important information that I know our listeners are really hungry for. Um, no pun intended, but uh, <laughs> really, <laughs> uh, you know, I think the, the, the traditional kind of approach using a DSM diagnosis, a prescription pad and some therapy has failed way too many. And, when, and I think you're certainly been innovative in a lot of what you're doing. You're ahead of your time. We just need to be able to uh, articulate the message to the greater community who've been kind of, unfortunately, just kind of brought up in a pharmaceutically driven world and think about things in, from that perspective. But um, I think what we learned today is our, our health, our well-being, our mental health, it's complex, right? And mm -hmm. we need to be able to assess all the factors, especially how we treat our bodies, what we put into our bodies, how we live. And that has to be a critical component of a comprehensive mental health treatment. 
Thank you for the Radically Genuine Conversation, Dr. Greenblatt. Thank you for having me. Appreciate the opportunity to kind of share some thoughts. Listening to a podcast may be therapeutic, but it is not therapy. Always seek the advice of your mental health professional. If you are in a crisis or you think you have an emergency, call your doctor or 911. If you are considering suicide, call 1-800-273-TALK to speak with a skilled, trained counselor. If you found this podcast interesting, please share it with a friend, subscribe through your podcast app, and engage with us through our social channels. And if you are concerned about a friend or family member, reach out. The six magic words, I was just thinking about you, may make their day. Thank you for listening.